Hello and welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. Each week, we bring you the most interesting conversations from around the media industry. Today, we're talking about ethical use of social media for reporting. We're speaking to Kevin Donnellan, who is a freelance journalist and social media consultant. He also teaches a fantastic social media reporting course on journalism.co.uk. This week, Kevin provides some solid tips on how to use social media to discover story leads, verify information and gain access to user-generated content. He talks specifically about two of the most essential platforms for journalists, TweetDeck and CrowdTangle. As we will discuss, we are all probably journalists here. We all have deadlines and social media can be our absolute best friend when it comes to finding our next story when on the clock. And we will talk about how to do that. But that pressure is no excuse for sloppy reporting though. So there are some best practices in store around approaching sources and penetrating into private networks. That's all to come. Don't go anywhere. Kevin joins us on Skype. This podcast is brought to you by journalism.co.uk. We bring you the latest jobs in the media and communications industry. Our job of the week is a managing editor position for WW Magazine. For this opportunity and more, visit our jobs board on www.journalism.co.uk forward slash jobs. Thanks very much for joining me, Kevin. How are you? I'm very good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well, thanks. Great to have the chance to speak to you. Uh, Today we're here to kind of talk about the ethical use and role of social media in journalistic uh, news gatherings and in newsroom Uh, Let's start with a little bit about why this is an important topic, Uh, Kevin. Of course, social media opens up this world of new stories. um, But do you think that tempts journalists to treat stories and leads that they see online a bit like a buffet? Does it is there a case that social media tempts journalists to drop the ball on their ethics? And if so, what areas do you think we need to be taken a little bit more seriously? Um, Yeah, like social media is obviously a really valuable tool for for journalists and for newsrooms. But um, yeah, I, I guess because it's it's relatively new um, uh, still at this stage, we're, we're talking kind of 10 plus years uh, where social media is a, is a valid place to search for news, to report on content. There is still a tendency, even after even after 10 years, to sometimes treat um, something that arri- arrives through social as impossible to verify just something that has appeared out of the ether and um you do still see a lot a lot of examples of um content that's just attributed to social media in general as if there's no possible way to find the person behind a video behind a quote behind a uh you know an, an anonymous post whatever it may be and there is um there is a lot more journalists can do to make sure that we're diligent in reporting on what appears on social because Otherwise, we're just pointing to interesting or cool things that we see on social rather than actually reporting on what we find on social. And that's they're two different things. Mm-hmm. Can you can you understand what drives that temptation, though? Can you understand that, you know, journalists do have their daily deadlines um, and that's kind of one of the things that causes them to perhaps not consider ethically how they are, how they're using social media? Yeah, completely. Yeah. Like there's uh, there's such a drive for um, speed, particularly if you're working on digital or, or in, in, in TV as well, where um, speed can be kind of valued above all else. But um, it's also not particularly difficult to, to verify um, what's found on social or at least to add qualifiers if, if you're not able to fully verify it. Um, so like the example 
I think most people who work in verification on social media would use is the, the tendency to sometimes attribute, say, a, a video to a platform. Um, so say you find a video uh, around a, a breaking news event and it's posted by a variety of different accounts, none of whom own the, own the video. And you see um, an attribution on a, on a news site then saying uh, Twitter as the as the source of a video. Twitter isn't the source of the videos. Twitter is the platform for the video, and the source of the video is someone that you need to track down and you need to speak to. So if you got a quote from a man on the street, you wouldn't attribute the quote to the street. And so that's kind of important to remember. And obviously, in a breaking news situation, if there's a a really compelling video and it helps tell the story sometimes an editor or a newsroom will make will make the call and say this is this is too important not to run this and that's fine if you verified the location and the date that's a that's a call for each newsroom to make i'm not passing judgment on that but i am saying that it's it doesn't take a um a huge amount um of extra work to to track down the person behind the video and if you're tracking down the person behind the video you're talking to the owner you're making sure they're comfortable with the video being used. I'm using video here as an example, but the same goes for, for photos and the same goes for just, you know, eyewitness accounts or just people who may be able to uh, help tell your, tell the story better. Mm. The, the other side of that, of course, is how to, how to approach interviewees and sources when they are perhaps at breaking news um, situations. Have you seen uh, good examples of how journalists perhaps get that wrong and right and best practices around that? Yeah, I guess the um, the stories, the breaking news stories where there's been maybe a, a terror-related attack or something traumatic has happened, you, you do see this kind of digital doorstepping. And um, obviously doorstepping is part of journalism across the board, not just in social media, but it can be shocking to, to the public to see someone who has, who has witnessed quite a traumatic event or maybe in shock themselves and um, having a hundred notifications in their in their timeline from people looking to to use their video it is a tricky area because you also do want to make sure that permission is sought and and, and granted it's just about reaching out with a bit of compassion the same way you would if you were speaking to someone face to face and who had been in a difficult situation or even this doesn't just apply to breaking news situations it applies to you know when you're reaching out to someone who has shared a funny video of a goat and you just you try and take the conversation um into you know direct messages or onto the phone you ensure they're comfortable with being contacted you have a conversation with them and you explain to them why why you're in touch and, and exactly what and um, what you're looking to um to achieve but if they're getting inundated with messages though the source um they probably won't be responding to all of them, how do you make sure that you're not kind of hounding them? At the same time, you obviously you want to get the story, you want to get the scoop uh, before your competitors. How do you strike that balance? That's a tricky one for journalists. Yeah, it is a tricky one. There's like a case to be made that if you're an hour or two hours late to a story and there's a hundred notifications um, or thousands of notifications on someone's, on someone's video, then maybe you're not going to get the clearance uh, at least through a, a public tweet. And maybe you should, um, take the loss on that one you're just adding to the pile at a certain point so there's an onus on newsrooms to be very quick like the earlier you are with the outreach the more likely you are to get a response but beyond that you're also looking is there is there another 
way of contacting this person. Again, only using publicly available uh, information. So is there a Facebook uh, profile you can uh, post to, an email that you can get them on, maybe even a phone number? Is there maybe a, a friend or relative that you can get in touch with and say, by the way, we'd love to speak to this person. If they want to get in touch, here's their email, here's a phone number. Not being intrusive, but just um, maybe not adding to that pile on of a hundred, a thousand tweets asking them, can can we use your video or can we use uh, your your photo? When you are as as the source, when you're in that situation, you're getting inundated. What impact does that have on them? If you've got loads of journalists kind of digital doorstepping you, I'm just trying to think, what's the consequence of that? Yeah, it's for most people, it's the one and only time this is going to happen, and I imagine most people don't necessarily give too much thought to clearance of video, rights, content ownership, um, all the implications of that. So you do need to, you know, when you're reaching out to them, just be clear about why why you're getting in touch, why it's necessary, giving them all possible information. It may not necessarily be that they're taking on board all the information in the immediate aftermath of, of taking a dramatic video, but you do need to make sure that you're being a, a, as open and honest as possible because, um, you know, you're not dealing with a fellow journalist who might be up to speed with all of this. You're generally speaking with a member of the public who this is the one and, and probably only time that they're they're in this position. So you need to kind of bring them up to speed with, uh, with what's happening and, and not kind of trying to secure permission on the fly mm. in the hope that they'll they'll say yes now and ask questions later. You, you, you want them to be fully informed. I've, I've touched a lot on kind of the consequences of getting it wrong. What's the consequence of doing it right and ethical practice, approaching interviewees, correct verification, all of these things synthesize. What does that do for you as a journalist and your wider news brand? Yeah, like it enhances your, your news brand's reputation. It, may, it means that the person in question is more likely to to endorse your your product, maybe share your story. If if, if someone has, you know, for example, 10,000 new followers because they've just uh, they've just shared a dramatic video and then point to your publication and saying by the way this news outlet is is using my video it, it's it's positive it helps drive engagement it just it means everyone's kind of coming out of it feeling like they're, they're a winner in a situation where someone has recorded something that's really dramatic that's going to be broadcast on every news channel in in the world where potentially it's going to get thousands of hits on on youtube the, the person who's uploaded it is, is also entitled to compensation there's a lot of kind of blink and you miss it stories that newsrooms probably aren't in a position to offer money from and, and most people who take a, a slightly incidental video you know the back of boris johnson's head as he walks into a building appreciate they're not going to get money for this but it might be useful on um in in an evening news broadcast but for high value video they should be holding out for money if they think it has value it's interesting um let's touch on a couple of specific platforms and tools which journalists can kind of leverage here um which which platforms do you kind of do you personally teach journalists to use in terms of um, some of the things we're talking about here and what are some kind of best practices around those? Tweetdeck would be one thing and making sure it's, it's optimized not just to be across what your competitors are um, reporting on, but also trying to figure out how can I see a story early. So if you're on a consumer rights beat. Are you, do you have columns set up for different companies that you've reported on in the past that maybe have a, a bad reputation amongst customers? You know, so if if for example you've you've had success in the past reporting on banks 
screwing over their customers. Um, do you have a tweet deck column set up with all of the main UK banks uh, handles? And um, are you just staying across anything that's that's springing up overnight? The same goes for, you know, breaking news content, you know, any keywords around shots fired or explosion or, or fire or police or anything like that. You can just be imaginative with the, the different searches you use on TweetDeck to just see see things early and you can adjust the engagement levels on that. So you're you're not seeing every single tweet that's going out across the world with the word fire, but maybe you're seeing every tweet with the word fire that includes a video or every tweet that includes the word uh, fire and a personal pronoun. So I or we or so you're seeing someone who's sharing a video of a fire that they are witnessing at this stage. It's just about trying to filter out as much noise from it and, and get into just the um, the newsworthy content. The other thing is CrowdTangle, which is used by, I'd say, every newsroom um, in the UK at this stage. There's a tendency to, to maybe use CrowdTangle to monitor what competitors are doing, what's doing well. So a social media team who are all about the engagement will use CrowdTangle to see the posts that are working well for competitors and maybe to see if they can replicate that or they can get it ahead of a story and by posting it to their own Facebook page. But um, CrowdTangle can actually be really, really useful in finding content early. So looking at local pages, local groups, fire services and um, police services, politicians, just seeing everything that's posted um, publicly, uh, what's doing well, what's just fired up overnight and is suddenly getting lots of shares and lots of engagement. So you can suddenly see, you know, the controversial posts or the interesting video that's that's doing well on Facebook early, earlier if you have it uh, set up in a, in a smart way. A lot of that what you're saying there sounds to me like sort of cutting out the noise and being a lot more specific about what you're looking for is less more with these kind of things is that the top line kind of thing to be more honed in on the on the columns that you're that you're looking for yeah yeah like me like i work in social media verification stuff so i've an awful lot of different columns that i'm scanning through every day but if you're if you're a journalist in a newsroom and your beat is travel you can keep it to you know nine or ten tweet deck columns that you scan through twice a day and you can keep it true to a pretty nicely tailored and um, crowd tangle lists or lists and um, just to make sure you're across things that are bubbling up on social it doesn't need to be uh you know endlessly scrolling through a hundred different tabs it's just about having a good idea of what's bubbling up on social on any given day so crowd tangle and tweet deck are the best ways to automate that and we'll keep you across um We'll definitely keep you across what's happening on Twitter and Facebook. Out of curiosity, uh, Kevin, how busy is your tweet deck? What does that look like? <laughs> how many columns do you have? Yeah, it can it can get a bit mad. It just depends on the story. Like I'm I'm kind of refreshing it and updating it and deleting uh, columns every day. So it depends on the stories. So like last week when there was uh, two huge stories coming from Iran, obviously there was uh, an awful lot of different uh, searches set up using um, Arabic and Persian keywords actually. This week it's it's relatively quiet and it's more just the fixed uh, the fixed search terms that they have and the lists that they have lists as well are obviously important where you can just build out a list of every person who's tweeting about a certain topic that you're interested in and you just have it permanently there so you can be across it so that can be across region or specific uh, interests as well. With a big sort of international story like that, how do you then kind of refine and modify your tweet deck to kind of look for? 
stories within that major story? Like you start off broad, so you have a, a location and you look for the local language spelling of that location or local language spelling of what happens. So, for example, the word missiles and you, if if possible, you're speaking to a uh, an expert with that language, but otherwise you're just messing around with Google Translate to make sure that you have a few tweet deck searches running and you're seeing what's popping up. And then after you get that, you're, you're starting to see the earliest tweets using that keyword. So for example, something like missile, when searching it on, I think was it last Tuesday morning? Uh, I can't remember the exact dates last week, but when I scroll back 12 hours and getting into my desk, um, up until a certain point the previous night, the missile posts were just random people who happened to be talking about missiles. And then suddenly there's a red line and everyone is talking about missiles. If you can get to the earliest posts of that around there, you're seeing people who are maybe a little bit closer to the story rather than the wider world reacting to it. And you're seeing what keywords they're using. And maybe there's a specific place name that's uh, being used and you put that into TweetDeck and suddenly you're seeing more people who are a little bit, have a little bit more local knowledge and you're using that that keyword across searches on on Instagram and Facebook and uh, to see uh, who else is posting around this uh, this place uh, place name. So it's just trying to get back to the point where a certain word, a certain keywords are being used on social before you know the whole of Twitter reacts to the big story that's that's taken place. Of course, those are those are some of the established platforms, Twitter and 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 Facebook that we've spoken about. There's also a lot of emerging social media platforms we're seeing like TikTok and Telegram. And kind of the question in my mind is, you know, as we seek to still understand how these platforms work, how do we know what is ethical and useful for journalists? Um, can we rely on practice established on other platforms or um, do new rules kind of write and present themselves? Yeah, there's, there's always new kind of questions to ask when, when it comes to social. There's, you know, there, there's ebbs and flows in, in what's private and what's not on social. Like the first number of years of this social media boom, the majority of newsworthy content was probably publicly posted. And we've seen a swing back in recent years after that kind of wild west where all of us were figuring out what we wanted out there publicly and notions of privacy. And it's swung back now that most of us probably will do a lot of our, our sharing of, of news or stories amongst ourselves, amongst friends in, in, in private groups. If those of us who still use Facebook are probably more likely to engage with with private message groups rather than public groups, um, so there is a swing back to privacy, which is a good thing, but can be tricky for journalists to to report on on misuse of social media, or um, for example, hate hate speech or, or stuff like that. So a lot of the stories, for example, that you saw on Facebook misuse in recent years. It's not that the content has necessarily gone away, but a lot of it has has disappeared into to private groups. The rules there are, are similar enough to rules um, an investigative journalist would have if they were going after a story. They'd need to ask, is there justification for me to use subterfuge in this story? And they'd need to, you know, speak to the lawyers. They'd need to they need to get it all clear from an editor, and then they would uh, take the steps they need. But um, it's the same with Facebook groups. No journalist should be going in and pretending to be someone they're not into a group just sight unseen or on spec. But if there's a strong possibility that there's something newsworthy, that there's misuse, that there's uh, of, of a platform or this hate speech, then if you can if you can build a case to uh, to your editor, then that's something you may need to look at. The, the examples I'm giving there are kind of you know for the more hard hitting like serious investigative pieces. For a lot of 
times you might see a, a, a private group. It's it's not for anything particularly serious. It's just, oh, this is where a local knitting group might have some insight into the into the story I'm working on. And um, in that instance, you just say, hi, I'm a journalist. I'd love to speak to some people in your group. Um, is that OK? Well, I, I can give you an interesting example uh, that, that just comes to mind. There is actually a Britain First group on Telegram. Uh, as a journalist, if you wanted to investigate that, what, what would be kind of your immediate thought process? With Telegram, there's hundreds, thousands of uh, interesting groups around extremist content. And I've no doubt there's an awful lot of journalists within those groups. If it's an open group that anyone can join, um, you would treat it the same as looking at someone's Twitter profile um, and just entering the group and seeing, seeing what happens. Obviously, if there's closed groups or invite-only groups, Again, you have to, to make your call if there's an opportunity to declare your intentions and say, I am a journalist, I'm joining this group. That's probably best practice. Um, the only the only time that, that changes is, is if if you feel you're talking about a story where an undercover element is necessary. And again, that's generally speaking, you're, you're hoping you, you've got the, the backing of an editor in the newsroom and a, and a chat with a lawyer to make sure that you're you're doing everything above board ethically and you're also protecting yourself, you're not leaving yourself out in the open. So new platforms don't actually change what is appropriate journalistic behaviour? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, like sometimes we can overthink this and think that we need to reinvent the wheel just because there's a new platform, just because suddenly Telegram exists. It's It's the same principles that you know, would have guided uh, journalists 20 years ago when it was all on the on the ground reporting, and um, it's just it's just applied to to new uh, new spaces. Kind of just thinking about uh, a last couple of questions for you here, Kevin. Um, what would be kind of like the main thing that you would kind of like to see reporters change about their use of social media now? If you were to kind of look at the next five years and what the main kind of challenges are, what would be the one thing you would kind of call journalists, our listeners, to kind of reconsider about their their practice? I'd say there's a few things. One, um, a handful of tweets doesn't constitute a groundswell of opinion. Um, I think the uh, Twitter has proven to be a pretty valuable tool for journalists. Um, it's used more than other platforms by journalists because that tends to be the platform where journalists reside. It suits people who like to share their opinions and we're not shy of doing that. And it's also a very easy platform to search. Mm. A result of that is that there is a tendency amongst reporters to find three tweets to back up an opinion. And you have at George the Dragon 1066 agreed with what was said in Parliament today or disagreed with this new initiative. And it's you'd have to question, you know, if, if you wouldn't quote a person on the street to back up a story, is there value in quoting an anonymous uh, Twitter account? Is it not better to speak to an expert? Like there is value in, in quoting the person on the street in plenty of stories, but um, sometimes I think tweets are kind of added as an aftershock to hit a word account. It, to, to my mind, it's that, and also the fact that just because somebody tweets something doesn't make it a news story all the time. It's kind of the immediate, oh, he's tweeted it, that's then a news story. Do you agree or not? Yeah, the, wor yeah, the worst examples are, you know, three people are annoyed about a hyper-specific thing and then it's it the story becomes the world is annoyed about this and it's it's not the case. And it maybe pr creates an impression um, through, through the news that, you know, everyone is very annoyed all the time. There's a lot to be said for having Twitter as a platform for sharing, making yourself heard. But I think sometimes uh, newsrooms can 
uh, place a little too much value on on an irate tweet. And then the other thing beyond that, I'd say just going beyond the profile of a person who has who has posted something and actually speaking to the source. There's a whole world of interesting content on social, but that's not our job as journalists to just be the person who shares funny videos you know or interesting tweets or opinion it's it's about actually finding the stories behind all of that and speaking to people and one-on-one so yeah it's just kind of digging a little bit deeper with what we find on social kevin this has been really interesting and kind of the main thing that stands out in my mind is what you said you wouldn't quote uh you wouldn't quote a street (laughs) so um i think it's been really useful uh thanks very much for joining me on the podcast hope to speak again soon cheers jacob thank you Thanks, of course, to all of our listeners today, wherever you've been tuning in, whether that's at home or on the commute. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. If you like what you've heard, Kevin's social media reporting course will cover all of what we've spoken about in a bit more depth. That's happening on the 13th of February in London. For more details on that, visit www.journalism.co.uk forward slash courses. We'll be back next week on the journalism.co.uk podcast. Don't forget to find and subscribe to us on the Apple Podcasts. Oh, and one last thing before I leave you, the entire journalism.co.uk team is in London on the 4th of February for a free entry networking drinks event, courtesy of News Ado. Details on how to RSVP for that event are on the website. If you'd like to feature on a journalism.co.uk podcast, you can get in touch with one of the team on Twitter at Journalism News. That's all from me this week. Until next time.